0: Good rainy morning. I thought it was supposed to be April showers bring May flowers, but I guess it's February showers. Although, I don't know if Easter comes early this year. There you go. So February rains bring Easter flowers. Yeah, there we go. Or February rains keep Charles busy. (laughs) Easter flowers. Well, good morning. This morning we are going to be in... Hebrews chapter 7. Our goal is to work our way through the entire chapter this morning. So we're going to see how we go. So I hope you don't have anything planned for this afternoon. Uh, No, just kidding. Um, The passage we are getting involved in this morning is a challenging passage, it's easy to get lost in the weeds. And uh, many people have gotten lost in the weeds. We're talking about Melchizedek. He was introduced back in Chapter 5, reintroduced briefly at the end of Chapter 6, focused on in Chapter 7, actually not focused on, but brought back to light in Chapter 7. And so we're going to spend our time talking about this uh, figure briefly um, that uh, people have wrestled with for more than a millennia. Who is this guy Melchizedek? We are not going to reconcile that today, just so you're aware. But before we start, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we can open up the Scriptures again this morning. Thank you for uh, giving us this amazing book called Hebrews that introduces us and reminds us and calls us back to Jesus. And so this morning, Lord, I pray you'll help us as we work our way into the chapter 7 that we will Uh, Be reminded again. And I pray that our task this morning will not be one of gathering data, but it will be one of seeing you. And so help us this morning, open our eyes to see. Give us minds that are receptive to your truth and that draw us to worship the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. In your name I pray. Amen. Chapter 7 is an interesting chapter And I would argue it's not primarily interesting because it's talking about this controversial and obscure person called Melchizedek. Um, That's not primarily the reason why it's an interesting chapter. The reason why it's an interesting chapter has nothing to do with the actual contents of Chapter 7. What makes Chapter 7 really, really interesting is that Chapter 7 is sitting solidly upon Chapter 5. Now, if you remember chapter 5, when we were in chapter 5, we came, as we worked our way through chapter 5, we came to chapter 5, verse 11. And if you remember in chapter 5, verse 11, what we found is that the writer of Hebrews said, (coughs) I have many other things I want to say to you, but I can't, and the reason why was what? What? You're dull of hearing. And as we worked our way through, he said, he mentions Melchizedek in there, but then he shifts over in, in chapter 6 when he says, and I'm going to just continue to speak on the, what I want to say anyway. Even though you're dull of hearing, I'm going to bring to bear what needs to be brought to bear. And his point was in chapter 5 is we keep on having to go back to these simple things, these simple things. And we're not doing that. And we saw that in chapter 6, a little more complex in chapter 6, isn't it? But we must not miss the point that one of the focus, one of the major, what's the word, I'm sorry, Tom, what's the word foci, is that how you pronounce it? Foci. The major foci of, of chapter 5 in this dull of hearing thing is Melchizedek, which is why chapter 7 references back to chapter 5. What is happening in chapter 7 is that the writer of Hebrews is saying these things are not for the dull of hearing. They're just not, but I'm going to talk about them anyway. Because my goal for you is not to be dull of hearing. And so now he moves on into the very thing that he said was not for the dull of hearing people. I say that to say it's time to buckle our seatbelt. Because it's challenging to understand for any number of reasons. One reason why this is challenging to wrap our minds around is because Melchizedek, shows up in Genesis but just shows up briefly in this strange passage in chapter 14 and then kind of is laid aside until this. And and the writer of Hebrews references this story in Genesis and drives some very, very important points home. But if you read the story in Genesis, it makes your brain hurt. Because it doesn't fit in, in what we know of the priesthood in so many ways. And Melchizedek is just this mysterious guy. And so when he comes back up in Hebrews, the goal of the writer of Hebrews is not to demystify him. So we're not going to demystify him. His goal is not to demystify him. His goal, as a matter of fact, isn't really even to talk about Melchizedek primarily. His goal is to talk about Jesus. We started out in Hebrews talking about the supremacy of Jesus. That's exactly what's going on here. As we work our way into the chapter, we're going to recognize, hopefully, that what what, what the writer of Hebrews is doing is trying once again to present from another angle the supremacy, the superiority of Jesus in very specific ways. So let's read chapter 7, and then we will try to unpack this text I'm not going to exegete the whole passage. I'm not going to do that. We're going to pick and choose and recognize some things that are really important and focus on what's really being mentioned here. So starting in chapter 7, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything, who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descendants from Abraham. But this man, referring to Melchizedek, who does not have his descendant from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Verse 11, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arrive arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than, the, than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necess- necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord who was descended from Judah, but in, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about, about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises like the, in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This made Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. For former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in, the o- in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make an intercession for them. For it was fitting indeed that we should Now, obviously, that's a pretty, from our thinking, convoluted text, isn't it, Dolores? I thought you'd appreciate that. It, it's it's kind of strange, isn't it? Well, let, Let's kind of demystify the text a little bit by recognizing right off the bat, the text isn't about Melchizedek. It references Melchizedek, if I may present it this way, since we're one week after the Super Bowl, like the color of the story. Does that make sense? It's like the color of the story. It's not the story. It brings color to the story. It brings clarity to the story. It's not the story. The story is Jesus. And the big point of the story, if I'm going to give you the big point of the story right off the bat, is the big point of the story is this. Just as Melchizedek was a different priest than the entirety of the Levitical priesthood line. So Jesus is also a different priest than the entirety of the Levitical priesthood and the Levitical line. It, it, to put it more clearly, just as Melchizedek was a superior, that's the argument, a superior priest to the entirety of the of the. Levitical priesthood line, so Jesus is a superior priest to the entirety of that Levitical priesthood line. To present it a different way, Melchizedek is a picture of, if I put it that way, Melchizedek and his, his priesthood is a picture of Jesus. That is, the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood is a picture it's not just as but it's a picture of the superiority of Jesus priesthood so want to recognize that that melchizedek is a picture of we would argue not a perfect picture of because he's not a perfect jesus does that make sense but he's a picture of jesus he he is he is Maybe a better way to put it is an illustration of the superiority of Jesus. So keep that in mind as we work our way through it. Again, we're not going to demystify Melchizedek this morning because that's not the point of the book of Hebrews. It's not the point of this chapter. We are introduced, however, to Melchizedek right off the bat in Chapter 7. Who is Melchizedek? Well, here we are. We, all we know about the, 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 this person, Melchizedek, is what? He's a king of Salem. And he's a priest of the Most High God. Right off the bat in chapter 1. That's what we know. We also know as we work our way through the text, as we come to chapter 2, or verse 2, I'm sorry, of chapter 7, his name means what? King of righteousness. And because he's the king of Salem, Salem meaning peace, he is the king of peace. The writer of Hebrews wants to single both out you recognize already there's a connection to Jesus? He's absolutely righteous, and he's the Prince of Peace, right? So we see a connection off the bat. We notice also in chapter 7, verse 1, that that Abraham went to war against some kings. He had victory. He took the spoils, and as, as he's coming back, he meets this priest who is also the king of Salem, and he meets him on the way. When he meets him on the way, this priest and king blesses Abraham. You see that in verse 1. As a result, Abraham gives him a tenth part of everything of his spoils, which is what? Technically called a tithe. Okay. And as a matter of fact, later on he brings up that this is a tithe. What else do we know about Melchizedek? Well, in verse 3, we find out that he is without father or mother or genealogy. He doesn't have a beginning of days nor an end of days. Does that mean that Melchizedek is an uncreated being? The answer is no. There's only the Godhead that is uncreated. Everything else was created by God out of nothing. The scriptures are very clear about that. Some argue that, that Melchizedek is an angel. Some argue he's a man. I really don't care. Meaningless to me. In either case, he's a created being. What, it, what the text means when it says in verse 3, is without father or mother or, or genealogy, having neither beginning nor end of days, doesn't mean he didn't have a father or mother. It doesn't mean he doesn't have a genealogy. It doesn't mean that he didn't have a beginning. It doesn't mean that he didn't have an end. What it's referring is to this. The scriptures doesn't record any of that. Does that make sense? I'm going to ask you, does that make sense repeatedly probably throughout this text because it's kind of complicated. What it means is that in the Old Testament, oftentimes there are genealogies with regard to significant people. In those genealogies, it's referenced that they were born and they died. In those genealogies, it references that there were mothers and fathers. Melchizedek doesn't have any of that data. He doesn't show up in any genealogies. There's no genealogies connected to Melchizedek. Therefore, there's no mother, no father, no genealogy, no beginning, birth, no end, death. There's none of that. It doesn't mean that those weren't there. It just means that they're not recorded. And they're not recorded for a very specific purpose. And the very specific purpose is because the point of Melchizedek being in the Old Testament at all is to be an illustration of a picture of a greater priesthood. A priesthood outside the Levitical priesthood. goes on in verse 3, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever because there's no end recorded. It's as if he continues forever. Follow me so far? It's as if he continues forever. So enough of verses 1 through 3 brings us to verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And when he says that in verse 4, he's basically just referencing what we just talked about in chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. King, priest, no beginning, no end, no genealogy, no mother, no father, not the Levitical line. See how great he is. Verse 5. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly offerings have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, their brothers, though these descendants are also from Abraham. But this man, now the contrast starts, but this man, who does not have his descendant from them, that is the Levitical priesthood, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And verse 7 establishes it. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the the superior. Who's the inferior in the storyline? Abraham. Abraham's the inferior. He's blessed by the superior. The superior being Melchizedek. It is without doubt that he is superior. Abraham had a beginning, had an end, had parents, all recorded. Had genealogy, all recorded. Priest, king, no genealogy, no father, no mother, no beginning, no end. Sounds pretty superior. It is is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. On the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he is still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him, is simply to say that although, although Levi, who later on all the priesthood came out of, was not born yet, obviously Abraham being the first of the Hebrews, he was, theoretically, the idea is, in the loins of Abraham, correct? Fertilization hadn't taken place yet. Birth hadn't ten- taken place yet. But he's the, the idea is in the loins of Abraham. So, in effect, as Abraham gave tithe tenth to Melchizedek, it's as if Levi and, in effect, the entirety of the priesthood of the Levites were in effect, honoring the the inferior to the superior. That's important to just see that. Now, all that to be said brings us to the whole point of the text. I don't want to lose ourselves in Melchizedek. We want to lose ourselves in Jesus. Inferior superior is the important part to bring out of verses 1 through 11. Verse 11, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? The point being that Melchizedek, he's already established, superior to the entire what? Levitical priesthood, superior to. But wait, stop the horses up. Wasn't the entire law leaning on and flowing through the Levitical priesthood? The answer is, well, yes. Absolutely it was. But wait a second. The Levitical priesthood, this is the argument of, of the writer of Hebrews, the Levitical priesthood is the superior or inferior line. Inferior line. The line of Melchizedek, superior or inferior? Superior. So the law is flowing through the superior or inferior? Inferior. Got to think through this, right? This is a thinking message, right? The entire law is flowing through the inferior line. Verse 11 again. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, Another way of putting it, now if perfection had been attainable through the inferior line, then what would there be need for a superior line? Correct? Makes sense so far? But the argument is that perfection can't be gained through the inferior line. Which is exactly what he says in verse 11. For under it, the people received the law, but if perfection would come through the law, now we already established this in Hebrews, right? Perfection doesn't come through the law, right? So if If the law was so important, then the Levitical priesthood would be superior, not inferior. So it's really important we get things in order. Inferior priesthood means inferior law. Now, it served its purpose very well, didn't it? It didn't mean it was superior. It's still inferior. Because what does the writer of Hebrews already say? And not just the writer of Hebrews, but also... What did Romans say? What did Paul say? And what did Peter say? And what did Jesus say? And the rest of the New Testament, and even the Old Testament, when you look at it, what was the purpose of the law? It was a schoolmaster, a a schoolmaster that that ultimately did what for, for, for the people? It pointed them to the reality they needed a redeemer. It served the purpose of condemning. That was its goal. That was its purpose. It was really good at that. But its purpose was not to achieve perfection. It was inferior from the perfection standard. It was absolutely inferior to the prote- in, in the in the perfection standard, and that's why he says in verse eleven again if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people who received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise in the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? Now, let me just stop on this for a second just by way of reminder. What did he just say about the law? In effect, he says, because the line of, Aaron, of, 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 the, of Levi is... Inferior, the law is also inferior when it comes to God, as in perfection. So, the reason why I stop in this for a second is just to say this. This is a reminder, y'all know this. Question: Why do we need to look to law? A really important question, because although. Why do we continue to look to law, right? Why do we continue to look to the law for our standard when the law is not for that standard, right? Why do we continue to look to the law to evaluate ourselves? We would only look to the law if something greater hadn't been in place. But all the way back to Genesis, something greater had already been introduced. Hadn't it? I mean, it had been introduced on one level in Genesis chapter 3 but introduced at a whole different level with Melchizedek. And as we look at who Jesus is, and what he claims to be in chapter 7, we have to continue to ask ourselves a really important question. Why do we keep looking to how well we keep the law? How well do we do with regard to the law? Because by us doing that, and we do it, don't we? don't we? We do it all the time. As a matter of fact, sometimes we even add more laws to it. Do you realize when we do that, what we're doing is we're denying the superior and we're saying we're okay with the inferior. And the inferior is a fine thing for us when God said, no, 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 no. It's inferior because there's something far greater that came. So I want to remind you, Later on, he's going to say in Hebrews chapter 12, starting at the very beginning of the chapter, he's going to say, looking to, and it's interesting, he doesn't say the law, does he? He says, looking to who? Jesus, what? The author and perfecter of, not the law, faith. Right? That's what he said. As we work our way through that passage, verse 4, he says, so that you don't lose hope. Cause looking to the inferior causes you to do what? Lose hope. Focusing on the inferior causes you to lose hope every time. So, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? What's he saying? He's saying, if it's possible for you simply summed, if it's possible for you to attain perfection with the inferior, there'd have been no need for the superior. Ever. No need. The only reason why there, there is a superior is because the inferior cannot do what you think it can do. What people all through history have thought it could do. It just can't. Moving on into verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. That's an important statement. The Levitical line, and then the order of Melchizedek. Inferior, superior. When there is a change in the priesthood, there must be a change in the law. That doesn't mean one priest dies and another priest takes over. He's talking about in the order. When there's a change in the order, there must be a change in the law. If the law is connected to the the priestly line and there becomes another priestly line, there must be a change in the law. Especially when it changes from inferior to superior. There must be a change in the law. So why are we looking to that when we have this? Because it has to be changed. Verse thirteen. For the one of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has ever served the altar. Was he trying to say there has been a change in the line? The original line, Levi. Verse again. Verse twelve. Uh, verse thirteen. For the one of whom these things are spoken, referring firstly and secondarily to to. Uh, I said that wrong, but secondarily it's referring to Melchizedek, but primarily it's referring to Jesus. For the one of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. There's a change that he's talking about in verse 12. The change has taken place. The one approaching the altar is from a different tribe. Verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord was descended not from Levi, but from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses not only didn't, didn't designate it, he said nothing about it. said nothing about priests. Jesus, being a priest from the line or tribe of Judah, the law says nothing about. Abraham, I'm sorry, Moses said nothing about him. It's silent. And so the idea of verse 12, there must be a change. Because there's a change in priesthood, in the line. There must be a change. And a change must reflect this new line. It must Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, and he goes on and shows some more of the differences, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily ascent, referencing what the law states. The law states that it must come from the line of Levi. That's the bodily descent. But by the power of an indestructible life. What's he referencing? The power of an indestructible life. Christ's life. He died, right? But he rose again, and not just rose again, because other people rose again, right? Who else rose again? Lazarus, for example. He rose again, didn't he? What happened to Lazarus? He died. Didn't he? Yeah. But Jesus, on the other hand, has an indestructible life. He rose again, and what? ascended. And the scriptures record he today does what? Say it again. Sits on the right hand of the Father. And he what? Makes intercession for us. And the future he will somebody else. Tom, be quiet. Somebody? He will He'll return, and he will judge, and he will ultimately fulfill the culmination of his rulership, right? And he will live forever, right? Radically different, right? Indestructible. It sounds kind of indestructible to me. And by the way, in the interim, all his enemies that would be attacking him, what are they going to do? Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Indestructible life. Verse 17. For it is witnessed of him, quote, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek from Psalm 110. (coughs) Verse 18. Verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For For the law made nothing perfect. So he's expanding on his further discussion of the law, or his previous discussion of the law. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. What is he saying? In 18 and 19, here's what he's saying. When the new priest came, that is the priest came. When the superior priest came, as we saw before, verse 12, change in the priesthood means a necessary change in the law. When a new priest came, what happened? Verse 18 and 19. The commandment, the former commandment, is what? Set aside. Why? Because of its weakness and uselessness. And again, for the law made nothing perfect. Now, we want to remember what Jesus said. I didn't come to what? To do away with the law or to destroy the law, but to, to, but to fulfill it. Because the whole law focused ultimately on him as the fulfillment of the law. So the idea here in verses 18 and 19 when he says because of its weakness and uselessness, he's referencing The idea of verse 19 being made perfect. The old law was useless for that. It was incredibly weak. How weak? It was absolutely useless. It could not make anyone perfect. So it is set aside. It's a radical statement, set aside. Not destroyed, Jesus' statement, not destroyed. Fulfilled in him, completed in him, because it was focused on him the needed redeemer. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. In other words, what he's saying is in the old law, it served as a schoolmaster who ultimately served to condemn us, but this new law, right? This new law provided a hope where before there was no hope. The only hope that the old law offered was a hope that someone would come and fulfill it because the people under the law, what, could not. It was useless, incredibly weak to the point of uselessness for having an effect of making someone perfect. But this new priest came after the line of Melchizedek And as a new priest, a new law is needed. And the new law that is brought in is introduced by this new priest, and it does something that the old law couldn't do, and that is it provides hope whereby we who are under this new priest are able to, what does the text say in verse 19? Draw near to God, whereas before we couldn't. Think about it. We know it. Even just physically speaking, who could go into the Holy of the New Testament? Just the high priest. And it was only because of the mercy of God, right? Did the high priest deserve to go? No. Every time he'd go, he'd sacrifice first for, we're going to find out in a few seconds, for himself and then for the people, right? His sins need to be covered because he's a sinner, just like the people's sins need to be covered. But this new priest provides a sure hope because why? There's no more covering of sin. Instead, this new priest doesn't cover sin. He what? He removes it. And according to the bigger story of the scriptures, not only does he remove sin, but he does what? He gives what? He gives his righteousness, doesn't he? He gives his righteousness. And therefore, we have hope. And we can do what no Old Testament person could do. We can draw near to God, which is a very strong picture of we can enter the holy of holies. We enter his presence. We draw near to God. Because the old, which was useless to provide perfection, is superseded by a new Verse 20, and it was not without an oath, that is, this new priesthood. It was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. The old priesthood, Levitical priesthood, was always made without an oath. It was made because of the the birth, absolutely, the bloodline. (coughs) But this one was made... But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn, sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. It's the oath. And who made that oath? The Father did. God the Father made that oath. To the Son, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Now, why is that so important? Why is that oath so important? Because this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant than the, other, than the last covenant. The former priests, talking about that former covenant, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever It's based on the oath. He continues in that priesthood forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, this new priest, since he always lives to make, as we said before after I told Tom to be quiet, I believe. Huh? <laughs> it says he, he always lives to what? Make intercession for them, those who draw near through him. So unlike the old, he's absolutely contrasted with the old priesthood. The old priesthood, at this point, they were priests for a while, and then they died. They weren't able to make true intercession. All they could do in the Old Testament is, as I already said, do what with sin? Cover the sin. But in the New Testament we have this new priest that doesn't cover he removes and therefore he can make intercession for us verse 26 for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest and then he describes this new high priest which is radically different and we get the idea of the perfect superiority of this new high priest right of the new priest what does he say he is holy innocent unstained separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He goes on, verse 27, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, which he just referenced, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Now, let me clarify something. He's offering himself up once for all, but this is where it's radically different. Remember what he just said? Verse 26, for indeed it, is, it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted in the heavens, above the heavens. Right? You get that? Verse 26. Verse 27, when he says, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins. He has no no need to offer sacrifices for his own sins. That makes him different from all the rest of the priests. Why? Because he's holy, unblemished. Separated from sinners. On and on, all that package in verse 26. He has no need to offer sacrifices for himself first. And then for those of the people, he doesn't have to continually, daily offer sacrifices for the people. You've got to separate those two things and understand what he's saying there. He no longer has to... He never had to offer sacrifices for himself, and he no longer has to offer sacrifices daily for the people who are sinners daily. Are they not? He does not have to offer sacrifices daily for them. Why? Because just as he, the priest, is superior to the Levitical line, so the law of the of, of this new high priest, new priest, is superior to the old law of the old, inferior priesthood, so his sacrifice is superior to the old sacrifices. You see, it's superior in every way. The priesthood line is superior. The law is superior. The sacrifice is superior. The sacrifice before was a daily sacrifice. Now it's a once-for-all sacrifice. He sacrificed himself. It was a once-for-all sacrifice that he offered himself up. Verse 28, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, verse 21, the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The line in the Old Testament, inferior. To this New Testament line. The law of the Old Testament, inferior to the new law. The sacrifice of the Old Testament, inferior to the new sacrifice. In every way, superior. What's the point of this? The point of this text in verse 27 is to remind, I'm sorry, chapter 7. It's to remind you and I that Jesus is superior to these things. Which is why we ask the question, why do we keep looking to the law? It's a really important question. It doesn't mean that the law has no purpose. We've talked about that before. It doesn't mean that the law has no purpose. But the law is not the standard it's been done away with because it was fulfilled in Christ. If it was fulfilled in Christ, then the standard is the one who fulfilled it, right? That's the standard. The one who fulfilled it is the standard. And the only way that can be superseded is if someone superseded Christ. But what does John say? No one is greater than Christ. So no one's going to supersede Which is why, going back to Hebrews chapter 12 again, which we haven't gotten to yet, we look to, not the law, but we look to Christ, the author and perfecter of faith. The answer is not when we're having a bad day or life is going rough. The answer is not, look to the law. That's not the answer. It never is. Not, not, Not today. It's not, look to the law. It's, look to Jesus. Now, here's what's going to happen. When we look to Jesus, you know what's going to happen? We're going to find ourselves looking at law, aren't we? Because we're going to look lovingly at the one who has loved us, our great high priest. We've said this before. And we're going to find ourselves saying, how can I love the one who has first loved me? The law functions as a really important purpose. But it's no longer the standard. It's not at all the standard. It's been superseded with the new law. And what's the new law? He doesn't say it here. What's the new law? It said in Galatians, and it said, it said in several books of the New Testament. What's the new law? What is it? The love of Christ. Absolutely. The new law is love of Christ. The new law is love. And it all flows out of that. That's the determiner. <laughs> By the way, guess what? We can't even understand love unless we look to Jesus. Can we? Like in a few, in, in a week, in less than a week, in what, three days, we're going to celebrate what? Valentine's Day. Why is it only girls said that? I know, but it was only girls that said it. I didn't hear any guys say it. That's interesting. But in three days, we're going to celebrate Valentine's Day, right? Well, some of us will. Celebrate Valentine's Day. There's no requirement to celebrate life. We're, we're free. Many of us will probably celebrate Valentine's Day and and express our love for our spouse. You know something? You don't have a clue what love is. Jim, if you're going to take your wife out for dinner, well you don't have to say if you are or not, but if you're going to take her out for dinner on Valentine's night, you're going to give her a new chainsaw, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You don't have a clue how to show love to your wife. You know that? Your wife knows it. (laughs) You don't have a clue because you're not the standard. We love because he first loved us. The only way we understand love is by looking at Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, the one who loved. That's where we learn. That's where we, we discover this new law is in Christ. And that new law rules everything. It changes everything. If Christ isn't the reason, if love for Christ is not my reason for what I do, how I think, what I say, then I'm following a different law. Uh, Let me change that. I'm following an inferior law. you realize that? I'm immediately succumbing and submitting myself to something that is inferior that has been done away with, as it were, as in it's, it's been fulfilled. Not done away with, as in gotten rid of, but been fulfilled. I'm denying the fulfillment that is found in Jesus. I'm clinging to the thing that is weak and useless versus the one who is superior. And will live forever and is indestructible and loves me forever and has given me life and is my high priest who is incredibly merciful and has made himself known to me by the truth and the word of God and give me his spirit so that I could know him. What's the point of this text? The inferior has been put away because the inferior has been fulfilled in Jesus. And the argument all way through Hebrews is the same. It is the same. Whether, whether he's talking about being hard, hard-hearted, cold-hearted, dull of hearing, the problem is always I'm hard-hearted, cold-hearted, dull of hearing because I'm clinging to the superior or the inferior. Clinging to the inferior. Every time, if I'm dull of hearing, it's because I'm clinging to the inferior. If I'm hard-hearted, if if I'm cold-hearted, if I'm not finding that the love of Christ is controlling me, there it is—the law of love, right? If the love of Christ is not the thing controlling me, it's because something else is. And that thing inevitably is something inferior that has never promised to do what you're looking to it to do. It's never promised to accomplish what you're looking for to accomplish. It won't do it. It can't. It just can't. That's why the scriptures tell us all things are from him, through him, to him. To him be glory forever. Because he's our great high priest. He's the one to look to. That's why he says, taste and see that I'm good. Because unlike the old law, I brought hope. And the new hope brings you near to God. It brings you to the Holy of Holies, whereas before you were excluded. It brings you into the presence of God and one day will actually bring you into His presence. The point of the text is the same point as we've seen all the way through the first six chapters. And if we look backwards into chapter six, and we see chapter six saying, in effect, if we turn back, we're not fit for the kingdom of God. That's not what chapter six says, but that's the point, isn't it? If we just sample and taste and play around with but we're not given over to our new high priest, by very definition, I'm caught up in all the inferior stuff. And the inferior stuff, what? It fades away. It's temporal. It's all temporal. As a matter of fact, the law, when it comes to the law, it's not just temporal, but it's already what? It's already fulfilled in Christ. It no longer has that purpose for you anymore. It's fulfilled in Christ. The point of Hebrews is, of Hebrews chapter 7, is a call to remember your great high priest. It's a call to be reminded again of his hope that he provides. It's a call, again, after all these other calls, it's a call, again, to stop, slow down, and ask ourselves, am I caught up in the inferior stuff? Oh, we don't follow the Levitical line anymore, right? I mean, so it feels like, yeah, we're doing okay. We don't have the Levitical line anymore. Now that's not the point. The point is more, are we caught up in the inferior or the superior? Are we caught up in that which was fulfilled in Christ, or are we caught up in Christ? Are we caught up in, in all the temporal things that served a purpose and serves a purpose, but not the purpose we think it serves? Are we caught up in the one who fulfills it all? Are we caught up in the one who was our perfect sacrifice? Are we caught up in all sorts of crazy? Stupid sacrifices that we do all the time as we follow the law. I'm not talking about anti-law and live however you want to. Paul's really clear about that in Romans, isn't he? He says, how could you possibly do that if you're looking at Jesus and realizing the new law, the law of love? How is that possible? That's incoherent. Jesus. And it ought to catch us by surprise at some level and cause awe in us to realize that this superior priest loves me. That this superior priest opened the way and gave me hope and brought me near and brings me near and will bring me near. It ought to blow us away. And the reason why it doesn't the reason why it doesn't is chapter 5. Because we're dull of hearing. When things that blow us away are not Jesus connected, Jesus related, Jesus glorifying, Jesus centered, it's because we've settled for inferior things and we're dull of hearing with regard to Jesus. And so the call of Hebrews is again for us to repent. To turn back to the author and perfecter of faith. To center once again on the one who fulfilled it all. And to recognize that there's no value in the other things outside of Jesus. There just isn't. The value of these other things are only found in Christ. Whatever those things are. We must not look at the stuff, the fabric of our lives as we so often do and see them as superior to Jesus. We see them as flowing from, through, and to. We must because that's who Jesus is. So if this doesn't move you, it's because we're... I'm not talking about my message. I'm talking about this text. If this doesn't move you, if this doesn't doesn't thrill you, if this doesn't make sense to you at some level, it's because we're, what? Dull of hearing. Come back to Jesus. And discover what he said is true. Drink and keep drinking, and out of you will flow rivers of living water. Taste and see, what? That the Lord is good. He does satisfy. He does. Always. That's who he is the law of love. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. <coughs> this, this text is challenging, but it's not primarily challenging because of the way that the writer of Hebrews wrote it. It's not primarily challenging because it's so complex, although it is. It's not primarily challenged challenging because to understand that is because we don't experience the priesthood of Levi. It's primarily challenging because we are dull of hearing. We struggle with hard hearts and cold hearts. And so we ask you again to soften our heart, warm our heart, sensitize our ears so that we, we know you. so that we hear you in the midst the the cacophony of noise all around us all the time, that we will hear and see and enjoy you. So please help us. In your name I pray.